As for today, we're going to continue in week seven of our series titled Chasing God's Heart, which is our, our study of King David. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the many characteristics that, that make up David's heart. Uh, such, so much, these characteristics are what earned him uh, the title of a man after God's own heart. We have seen David's courageous heart. We've seen his passionate heart. We've seen his generous heart. Two weeks ago, we saw his discouraged heart while he was on run from, from King Saul. And it showed us that not every element of his heart, nor of any human heart for that matter, is always a positive one. And such is the case with today's message, because today we are going to talk about a sinful heart. We are going to look at a time in David's life where he got severely off track and he fell deep into sin. And this is certainly a part of David's heart that I believe we can all relate to. And I say that because the lure of sin is always before us, always presenting opportunities to derail us and to ultimately destroy us. Because sin, ladies and gentlemen, is the most destructive force that the human race has ever had to face. It has created more problems and it has decimated more lives than literally anything else. Sin is what lies at the core of every harmful situation that the human race has ever had to face. And it is something that every one of us in this room struggles with and in a variety of ways. Maybe you're a person who finds angry, hurtful, and profane words proceeding from your mouth regularly that you can't seem to control. Or perhaps you carry around a judgmental spirit inside of you that regularly comes to the surface. Maybe you deal with an ongoing sexual preoccupation that literally controls your thought life and it manifests itself in actions that you are not at all proud of. Maybe you have an unteachable spirit and that unteachable spirit has developed into a sense of self-righteousness. You grew up in the church, you've, you've been active, you're always here, but you've actually convinced yourself that what you hear spoken about week after week applies to those around you. You find yourself bored with the truth as far as it relates to you personally. Perhaps you're somebody who regularly bends the truth. You never really tell the whole story. And you've discovered that regularly in your conversations there's a dishonesty in your talk. Maybe you're driven by greed. Every decision that you make is based upon what's in it for me. Perhaps you find yourself regularly gossiping about others, putting them down with a highly critical and derogatory kind of, a, of an attitude. Or maybe there's just a coldness in your heart towards God. You don't want it to be that way. You want to, you want to be alive and you want to be tender towards God. But there's a habitual sin that you're dealing with. And it's keeping you in bondage, whatever it is. I want to talk this morning about how it is that we wrestle with sin because there is nothing more serious, nothing that will damage you more than the brokenness and separation from God that sin creates. I also want to look at how sin played out in the life of King David. One of the most famous stories of his life, second only to his victory over Goliath on the battlefield, is the not-so-victorious story of David and Bathsheba. And, and I think a common question that comes up regarding this episode in David's life is how could he allow this to have happened? You know, it's one thing when someone brazenly rejects God and sins in some kind of a spectacular way. That seems to come as no shock to us. We see it happen all the time, and we even become conditioned to it. It makes the tabloids. It makes the nightly news. But this story is about David, a man who loved God so much and who had continually experienced God's anointing and favor on his life. Throughout his entire life, God had shepherded David and protected him. God helped him to defeat Goliath and continue to do so as king while he defeated the enemies of Israel. 
As a grown man, David was so submitted to God that he honored Saul in the cave. We talked about that uh, a week ago, when he, when he, two weeks ago, when he could have killed him and gotten out of the cave, but he didn't. He loved God so much that he danced with joy when the Ark of the Covenant was being returned to its prominent place in Jerusalem. He loved God so much that he wrote psalm after psalm, and he poured out his heart, and he poured out his prayers to God. This is truly a man after God's own heart. But now, in this episode of his life, David is guilty of lust and coveting and deceit, and he becomes an adulterer and, yes, a murderer. How could all this happen? Well, let me turn around and ask you the same question for a moment. Who in this room is so certain of your own spiritual strength that what happened to David could not happen to you. I think this story brings a real hard truth to the surface that, that we don't want to face, and we seldom don't ever want to talk about it, in that every one of us has fallen, and we will always deal and wrestle with temptation and sin. It's a real struggle. It's your struggle, it's my struggle, and so we need to call it for what it is. We, uh, we have this charade we play in the church where we divide sin into different categories. There are acceptable sins, and, and then there are scandalous sins. There are regular, regular everyday sins that we commit, and we try to convince ourselves that they're, they're acceptable. But those big sins, oh, those are, those are totally different. I, I'm not a part of that. And with a judgmental spirit, we think, oh my, how could anybody fall to that kind of a level? We're kind of giving ourselves a pass on our own area of struggle in our life. But you got to understand something this morning. God doesn't categorize sin. He just doesn't. It's all the same to him. Sin is sin, no matter what the variety is. And sin is a device that is used by our enemy to bring people to a place of brokenness and to separate us from God. The longer I'm a pastor and the more I know about people, the more I realize how susceptible we all are to brokenness. Sometimes we sin and sometimes we don't sin. And when we don't sin, one of two things happens. Either we heed the warnings of the Holy Spirit that's screaming in our left ear and, and respond by not sinning, or we simply don't think we can get away with it. But here we have David who could get away with it, or at least he thought he could. And that's a real dangerous place for anybody to be. I think a great problem in the church is we tend to underestimate our fallen nature. I think that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying here, it's the one who doesn't think he or she struggles with sin anymore is the one who is really the most vulnerable of us all. He's saying to us, beware of your struggles and not the struggles of the person who's sitting to your left or to your right. You see, in life, there is absolutely no room for pride or complacency or a judgmental spirit. And I think it is worth reminding all of you, our goal here at High Point is not to allow just perfect people to walk through these doors, as if there is such a thing. That is not our goal. This church, I've said many times, is a hospital for the sick. This is not a country club for a bunch of pious religious people. Our goal is to reach the most fallen, the most jacked up, messed up, mixed up, out of control sinners in all of Tehama County that you and I were once one, once one of them. And so this story is the story of one such sinner. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You don't have a Bible. There's one in the pew pocket in front of you. Of course, all the scriptures will be up on the screen to my left and my right. You can follow along. I want to walk you through what I think are four crossroads in this episode of David's life that we've all faced or we will all face at one time. And three of these crossroads, David just blows right through. And every time he blew past one, 
things just got worse for him. So let's start by reading the first five verses that bring us to this crossroad. 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version today. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. You can clearly see the first crossroad that David faces here in the very first verse. Much like King Saul before him, David is experiencing a spiritual drift. David has come to a place with a kind of a spirit where a spirit of a spiritual drift has occurred in his life or entered his life. And you can see it clearly when the writer says this in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Now, this is quite a significant line a line here at the time when kings went off to war. It's just always been that way. This was the time of year when battles would get fought and wars would be waged. It's just what they did. But this year, David thinks to himself, I don't want to go and I don't have to go. So let them go without me. That's one of the privileges of being a king. You could mix things up if you wanted to. Now, it's worth noting that the Israelites had said in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, that they wanted a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And David had always done this in the past. That was his MO, but not this year. And most Bible scholars believe that there was something significant going on within David. And you can kind of read between the lines. It was generally believed at this time that he was about 50 years old. He wasn't an old man yet, but he was no longer the golden boy either. The ladies weren't looking at him the same way that they used to. He couldn't fit into his skinny jeans anymore. <laughs> he told himself that he'd have to go to the gym. And so he had a jogging track built around the palace. He started working out with a personal trainer. And he didn't tell anybody, but his new royal beverage were those little cans of Ensure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to make the, you understand the story a little bit better. So what did David want? I'm not sure he really knew. Perhaps he wanted to feel young and alive again. Maybe he wanted to feel vital and vibrant. But he was restless. And he was lonely. And he was a little bit bored. So he decided that, that he would stay home. And you can be certain that this is, a, this is one thing that he didn't seek God's permission from or, or seeking God to, to even make a right decision. You see, David's real problem was there's this drift that's going on within him. He was losing sight of, of God's hand that had continually been on him throughout his life. He got used to it. And folks, whenever you get used to something, what do you do? You take it for granted. So David, when it comes right down to it, decides like so many of us do that I'm going to have to look out for myself. And I think that's what's so common whenever a person begins to approach or consider acting out in sin. David was drifting and he should have been spending time alone with God to find out what was causing this spiritual drift in his life. Why was he lonely and bored? Maybe he needed a new challenge. Maybe the fear of getting older had crept into his life and he needed a, a deeper experience of God's love and acceptance of him. But he doesn't pursue any of that. He just drifts. He just chooses to stay at home. And I want to pause for a moment at this crossroad because some of you right now are at a crossroad in your own life. You're a little restless. You're a little bit bored. You're a little bit dangerous right now. Your motivation to obey and serve God is at an all-time low. And it's getting lower. 
You're not sure why, but there's a drift going on. And you need to understand that you are in a very dangerous place. So I must ask you, will you find time to pour your heart out to God? And will you trust that God knows you and cares enough about you that he has your best interest in mind? Will you trust him enough to say to him, God, I'm a little lonely. I'm in a little bit of pain, whatever it is, but I'm going to hold you real close. And and I'm going to trust that there's a better season ahead of me in spite of whatever disappointments may exist right now. Well, David doesn't do this. He just continues to drift. And because, because he's home when he shouldn't be, he gets up out of bed late one afternoon and he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop. And the text says that she's a very beautiful woman. Notice verse three. And David sent someone to find out about her. Now please take note of this word sent because it's a key word throughout this story. The word sent is used a boatload of times, mostly by David. Commonly, it is used to to refer to the way that David plays God in people's lives to get what he wants. He sends here and he sends there. And he's used to it because David sends for information about this woman. You can clearly see he has now drifted from temptation to action. And there's always a fine line between the two. So David is making plans in his mind. Then the second part of verse three, we come to the second crossroad. The second crossroad that he blows right through is a spiritual warning light. David sends someone to find out about this bathing woman. Notice what happens. A man, a servant of David says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David now has a specific temptation, but there's this little warning light going off on the dashboard of his, of his brain. And it's in that phrase, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Look, this servant of his is not a stupid man. He's got a really good idea what's going on in the heart and mind of David. And it's really a pretty gutsy thing when you think about it for him to say to the king. And let me just, let me just say here, This is what good Christians do. We are to be there for one another. We are to be there to hold each other accountable. When we know that we've got a friend struggling with sin, our job is to direct them away from their sinful activity. He's saying to David, he's saying, this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. So be very careful here, my king. This is the crossroad where you hear that inner voice or a message from your conscience or the words from a friend before you you do wrong. And please understand that each one of those warnings is sent by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is using other people and other situations to bring this into your mind. And God is clearly sending David a message here. Now, if David had been in a spiritually sensitive place, that statement would have stopped him dead in his tracks. But the truth is, thinking was the last thing that David wanted to do. He just hits the accelerator, and he floors it, and he blows right through that crossroad too. And again, let me pause before I go on, because some of you are at a stoplight. You're not just drifting, but a specific temptation has taken hold of you. Perhaps you haven't crossed any lines yet, but you're definitely like David thinking about it. You are considering it. And God is asking, will you stop and think about the consequences of your actions? I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to command you with the the strongest pastoral word that I know how to. Whatever area you are struggling with, I want you to be courageous enough to get alone with God and to go real deep. And you must get real clear here because nobody is going to do this for you. Your friends are not. Your family's not. Your pastor's not. This is all about you. This is between you and God. Get real clear on what it is that you believe and what it is that you value you and then you live it out because this is real life 101 that we're talking about this morning. Well, David just blows right through that crossroad. Verse four says this, then David sent messengers to get her. David is sending again. This time he's not sending for information. He's sending for the woman and he uses his power to get what he wants. 
Up to this point in the story, everything is working out just as David had planned. He sees, he lusts, he inquires, he finds out, he sends for her, he sleeps with her, and then he sends her home. But then something happened that was not in the script. Nothing that David had ever expected. Look at verse five. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Here's that word sent again. Only this time David is not the sender. He's the sendee, I guess, or the receiver. He hadn't counted on this. And this is what always happens with sin. Sin always sets into motion spiritually destructive forces that you can control, cannot control, no matter how much in control you think you are. Sin always does this. It may be an unexpected outcome from your sin, but sin will always include a loss of integrity and character and a loss of innocence. Sin will set into motion things that, that you can either expect and most certainly cannot control. And that brings David to his next defining moment, to his next crossroad. Now that the results of his sin have put things out of control, which it always happens, now there's a crossroad for him of how do I respond? After you've sinned, after the fact, how do you respond when you become aware that you've done wrong and the consequences of your wrongdoing start to unfold? You see, at this point, David could have thrown himself to his knees. He could have confessed to God, to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to his people about what he had done and then try to set things straight, but David doesn't. He decides to, to go down a darker road because David still thinks that he can control this story. If you go to verse six, you'll notice that this word sent is now getting thrown all over the place. It says, so David sent this word to Joab. Joab is his army commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. David's going into overdrive right now. He, but, and just think of the damage that is being done to his character. Verse 7 through 9 says, When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift of food from the king was sent after him. And with that, David thinks he's back in control. But Uriah throws an unexpected curveball at him. And I, and I believe here that, that Uriah's response tells us a whole lot about his personal character. And what a stark comparison to the lack of character that David is now exhibiting in his life. Verses 9 through 11. But Uriah slept at the entrance at the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and J Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And with these incredible words, spoken by a man with great principles, David responds by getting more fired up and to try a little bit harder. Verse 12 and 13, then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. This is unbelievable irony that this foreigner, Uriah the Hittite, is more faithful to God than King David. He is more faithful to God when he is drunk than David was being sober. So how far will David go with this? as far as he had to. And the next thing he does is literally diabolical. Verse 14, 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now David is willing to commit murder. And what's even worse is he's having Uriah carry his own death warrant with him. Doesn't know it. Doesn't know what's written on that note, but that's what it is. And understand that this is not a decision that was made in a moment of passion. The passion is over. This is is calculated, cold-blooded murder. And David's willing to draw in his military chief of staff as an accessory. And he's gauged this man well because he agrees to do it. Notice something else. If Joab is going to have Uriah killed on the battlefield, he can't just send out one man. He's got to put a whole division of troops into a place where there's going to be heavy fighting and where other soldiers are going to lose their lives. They're willing to sacrifice other innocent soldiers in Israel's army in order to have this one man killed to cover up David's sin. And Joab does this for David. He deliberately sacrifices other innocent soldiers to be butchered so that Uriah will die. And so now David isn't just responsible for Uriah's death, but he is a murderer of others, and his blood is on their hands. And I can't help but wonder that when later on, when David wants to build the the temple, God says, you cannot build the temple because there is so much bloodshed on your hands. I'm wondering if it is this situation is what made God determine that. I don't know. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to this city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbethsheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall? so that he died in Thebes, he's referring to another battle. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. And of course, Joab knows that that last statement will silence any of David's protests that he might make. There's kind of a blackmail going on now between Joab and David, a kind of a dark conspiracy that that they're drawn into. Look at verses 22 through 25. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. These very insincere words spoken by David here came from the same mouth that sang songs to God and prayed prayers to God and and, and defied Goliath in God's name. David has risen here to a level of cynicism and deceit and hypocrisy that is simply dark. It's truly diabolical. And, And he has committed himself to an overall strategy of cover-up. And here's a bit of reality. The consequences of sin will always lead us to one of two results. We will either, there will either be repentance and confession and restitution, or there will be continual cover-up, which will lead to continual sin. Well, David's almost finished. He's just about got it all covered up now. Verses 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So David's done it. He's gotten away with it. 
Nobody would ever know, right? See, David was convinced that his greatest danger in life was people finding out about his sin. But of course, that wasn't his greatest danger. The greatest danger is that no one would find out and his soul then would be utterly destroyed. That's always the way it is with sin, ladies and gentlemen. We're so afraid that someone might find out about our sin when the truth is our greatest danger is that nobody will find out and we'll continue to live in darkness. You see, it is the secrecy of our sin that keeps us in bondage. It is. When we keep it a secret, we continue to sin. When we share it with a brother or sister in the Lord and say this is a struggle and we pour our heart out to God, that's when things change. But David has one more crossroad. Look at the end of verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Another translation says, but the thing King, excuse me, the thing David has done was evil in the sight of the Lord. I think that's a better translation. David covered his sin from just about everybody, but there is one person, one God who sees everything with utter clarity, and he will call us all to account one day, and his justice will not be evaded. He will not be fooled by our lies or by our cleverest cover-ups. So David's fourth crossroad comes, the pronouncement of the judgment of God. This is David's last chance. And here we are introduced to one more character, Nathan, who is a prophet. And you'll notice that word sent is being used once again. In 2 Samuel 12.1, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to Daniel, or to David, excuse me. And the last, that's the last time that you're gonna see that in this story because when God sends, folks, <laughs> the deal is done. David has been playing God in a lot of people's lives for a long time, probably for over a year because the baby that Bathsheba conceived has been born. David has been playing God with Bathsheba and Uriah and, and Joab and the army and all of Israel. And maybe you've tried to play God as well, I don't know, but you gotta understand something. The day will come when God is gonna be like God. And clearly God has revealed to Nathan what David has done. And now God is the one who's doing the sending by sending Nathan to David. And Nathan has given a great deal of thought about, about how he's going to approach the king in this very sensitive situation. Nathan has to find a way to get past all of David's defenses. Because that's the first thing that happens, is denial. And we, we put up this wall and we won't let anybody break through it to get to the truth. He, he needed something to get past the hardness of his heart. So he thinks, and I'm sure he did a lot of praying, and he fi it finally is given to him. He decides he's going to tell David a story. Look at what he says in 2 Samuel 12.1. We're one chapter next, 12.1. There were two men in a certain town. This is his story he's telling David. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He had he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a little daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb and, that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Nathan tells this very artful story, and I want you to notice David's response in verse five. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David gets all fired up about this guy. How can anybody do such a thing? You know, it's, it's easy to listen to a message like this today and get all fired up about somebody else's sin without thinking about your own. You ever find yourself listening to a message and, and thinking, man, I'm so grateful because God directed that message precisely at my husband or my wife or my, my son or my friend or that guy who's sitting across there who I know what kind of a lifestyle he lives. 
Ever been guilty of that? Instead of saying, God, are you talking about me? Is this my sin you're dealing with here? It's what David does here. And we're all guilty of that. We love to express a little self-righteous indignation regarding the sins of others because it makes us feel better about our own sin. David, in the midst of all of this darkness, is so self-deceived. Scriptures say in verse 5 and 6, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, and I want you to listen to this spiritual language here, surely as the Lord lives. Then comes one of the most courageous statements in all the Bible from the prophet Nathan. He's standing before the king, not just a peer, not just a friend. This is King David, but this is not the same David who tended sheep for his father. This is not the same David who defied Goliath. This is a ruthless man. This is a liar. This is an adulterer. This is a cold-blooded murderer he stands before. And he does not hesitate to sacrifice the life of Uriah or the life of who knows how many other men in that battle. Innocent soldiers. Nathan Nathan was risking his life here, but he doesn't hold back. Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. He looks David in the eyes. He says, you are this man, David. This is your sin. This is how far you've fallen. Look at the depths to what you have descended. This is your heart, David. This is your story. And you are the man. And then who knows for how long. There was probably just complete silence. And surely the thought must have occurred to David. Well, I can control this problem too. I took care of Bathsheba. I took care of Uriah. I took care of Joab. I, could, I took care of the army. This is just one man. He's a prophet. He just got introduced to us in the Bible. I can take care of him too. I'll get rid of him and I'll be home free. No one will ever have to know and I can make up for it. I can still be a good king. It's a familiar voice inside of his head speaking those things. It's a voice he's been listening to for a very long time now. But somehow, somewhere, there is another voice inside of David It's the voice of truth. And it was a voice from an earlier time in his life, one that David was familiar with when as just an innocent boy out tending sheep full of idealism and full of a great vision. It was the voice he heard when he stood before Goliath, that giant who was blaspheming his God. It was the voice that reminded him of the time when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it was being brought back into Jerusalem. It was the voice that was spoken through Jonathan, who loved him so much when he said, David, never forget, you are the Lord's anointed. And now that same voice is reminding him of King Saul and how far it was that he fell. And it's saying, David, that's what you're going to become. You're this close. So David stands at this final crossroad for for who knows how long. And then this miracle happens. And this heart that had been hardened and cold and dead, it just melts. And the soul that had been walking in darkness took its first weak and feeble step back into the light. And David speaks in verse 13. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David admits, he says, I'm the man in your story, Nathan. I'm the man who doesn't deserve to live. He's confessing, that's my sin. That's my story. I'm the man. And after Nathan informs David of the fallout that will occur because of his sin, and and, and there's a fallout, which I don't have time to get into today, but we will later, you need to hear what Nathan says to David as he confesses. Nathan says in verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. There are many people in this room today who need to hear this same message this morning. The Lord has taken away your sin. You can walk out of here today forgiven as someone who lives in the grace of God. Grace is is such a beautiful thing. 
And the beauty of grace is that there isn't a one of us that deserves it, but we receive it because we serve a gracious God. And that means anytime somebody comes to him with sincerity of heart and says, I'm the man, I'm the woman, God says, I'm going to extend my grace to you. So ladies and gentlemen, we can go home today and not be defeated by our sin any longer. Maybe it's something that you have struggled with for years, maybe your whole life long. Maybe it's just gonna continue to be your struggle. God doesn't say you have to be perfect in order to receive his grace because there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And then we can say what the apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward, help me to close this down. And I'd like everyone who can, please go ahead and stand to your feet. There are people here today and you need the same kind of a miracle that happened in David's heart. And some of you may not even know it, but you're at that place. Maybe like David, you have sat through messages and you thought about your sh- this message and you thought about your shortcomings, but you tended to deflect and start thinking about the shortcomings of those around you. But the, today, I believe that the Holy Spirit has made very, very clear to each and every one of us the things that we struggle with, the things that are challenging us, the things that trip us up. And maybe you're at a point because the Holy Spirit has taken you this morning that, that you remember the days of your greatest closeness to the Lord, when you worshiped and you served the Lord and, and you longed to serve him, but something has happened and you've, you've kind of drifted away from that. I wanna ask you, will you do what David did? Will you have a contrite heart? Will you say to God right now, I'm the man, Lord. I'm the woman. It's my story. It's not about the person sitting next to me or in front of me or behind me. It's a very, very important moment. And I want to ask that no one leaves this place right now out of respect for the Holy Spirit. I want to read Psalm 51 to you. As we know, David wrote many of the Psalms. You know what it says underneath this Psalm? A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David writing here. This was his plea to the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O Lord, you will not despise. Holy Spirit is in this place in a very real way this morning, and he wants to do a work in our lives because there are Christians here today who are drifting. You have been growing cold to the things of God. He wants to reignite your faith this morning. There are people here today who have been defeated by sin. When temptation comes knocking, you just always, it always seems to win out. And there are others here today and you've never ever accepted Jesus' forgiveness. You've never uh, received the grace that Jesus offers. You've never accepted him as Lord and Savior of your life. And some of you are in situations I haven't even described this morning. Whatever it is, you need to reconcile these struggles with the Lord this morning. It all begins with confession. Just calling your sin for what it is. 
and, and asking God to cleanse you of that sin. When you get serious about your struggle, when you seek God's power and you seek his help in this matter, you'll get a better understanding what it is that drives your sin and you will overcome and you can stop the drift that you're on away from God. I'm not gonna ask you to come to the altar today. If you want to, you can. This altar is always open. Instead, I've asked the worship team to sing a song that you all know. It's about the 51st Psalm. While this song is being sung, I either want you to sing it or bow your head. Let's just all bow our heads. We can sing with our heads down. I want every eye in this place closed. And I want you listening to the voice of truth this morning. You can either listen to this song and pray in your own words and, and tell God about this, this drift, this weakness you're struggling with and ask him to empower you. And if you're riding a, a wave of contentment and things are great between you and God, then feel free to sing this song up. But the worship thing is going to sing it. And when we're done with this song, I'm gonna come back. We're gonna close in prayer. Don't lose this opportunity to reach out and to touch the Lord. God's spirit is here. He will strengthen you in whatever it is that you're struggling with today.
heads bowed, I'd like to close this service in prayer. Holy Spirit of the living God, we thank you for your presence here today. And we thank you for the reminder from the scriptures that we are all susceptible to sin. Here we have a man given the title, a man after God's own heart, and we've seen things more diabolical than probably any of us have ever considered. But he sought forgiveness from you, Lord, and you cleansed him. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that our sins can be washed away. And we thank you for the power and the presence of your spirit in our life that speaks into our outer ear when we're about to embark on things that we know are harmful to us and to our spiritual life. And God, I pray that you would open our ears to listen to the voice of truth and not the voice of lies that the enemy preaches and speaks into our ears as well. Help us to decipher between the two and to live by the voice of truth, the voice of your spirit. Father, I pray against struggles and sin and strongholds and addictions in the name of Jesus here today, anyone who's suffering from one. Father, I pray you would set them free, that you would empower them through your spirit to overcome, to sidestep these things that have maybe held them in bondage for far too long. And I pray, Lord, that as we move forward from this day, we would make spending time and reaching out to you a priority above all other things, even if it's just for a few moments every day, God, that we start our days by saying, Lord, I've got a day ahead of me, and I know there's gonna be temptation, and I know there's gonna be struggles, and so I just put on the armor of God, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would protect my thoughts, protect my actions. Let me walk as a man or a woman of God this day. Be with my church family, Lord. Each and every person here today, I ask you to bless them as they leave here. Strengthen them in your spirit. Encourage them in their walk with you. And Father, let them not be defeated by their shortcomings, but instead cry out to you and receive forgiveness. And Father, as we leave here today, I pray that your spirit would guide and direct our steps, places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Father, make those conversations be ones that build people up and not tear them down. Let us walk as bright lights in a very dark world so brightly that people want to know what it is about us that's different and we can share your goodness with them. As I always pray, Lord, I, I just ask for a divine appointment for all of us this week, a divine appointment where we can talk to someone, invite them to church with us on Easter Sunday. And Father, we would see souls one for your kingdom next week. Just ask that you, between now and the time we meet together, you would keep us safe from any sickness and disease, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we leave these, this place today, let us go in love. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.